0: You're listening to Leading Innovation at Work, the Future of Business podcast with your host, Lori Rowlandson. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Leading Innovation at Work. On today's show, we have one of my uh, favorite people that I've had uh, the privilege of working on in a number of different capacities in our industry, Dean Stanbury. Dean, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you, Laurie. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: No, it's great to have you. Hey, Dean, one of the questions uh, I always like to get uh, started with as a bit of an icebreaker. Um, You know, I know both you and I share a great passion for our profession and facilities management and everything around the built environment. And one of the interesting, interesting factoids that I I know about many professionals in our situations, we didn't start out that way. I'm wondering if maybe you could just in your own words, just describe your career path and it might be not a straight line, but did you anticipate that this would be where you are in your career when you were a kid or university choosing your courses and what was your career path?
1: Yeah, it's been interesting. I've actually had two careers. Um, You know, I grew up in a small farm town in California and of course, that was you know before computers and, and everything else. So, what I like to say is that what I learned in my hometown is everything that I did not want to do for the rest of my life, because uh, I was a diesel mechanic and a welder, and you know, like I said, it was a, it was a farm town. Um, I left California. And I eventually went to work for the phone company, and very soon after, I kind of got into IT. That was the early days of IT. Uh, this is before the IBM PC came out. My first personal computer took up 900 square feet of floor space and was water-cooled. Um, so, But when I got into IT, that's where I spent most of my career at, the, uh, at US West, which was a, you know, one of the major telecom companies in the U- US at that time. Um, and so throughout that, I did a number of things from data center operations, uh, strategic planning, Um, did a stint on an international assignment, lived in London for about a year, Um, and one of the last things I did is I was the staff manager for the CIO uh, of uh, U.S. West, which that meant I got to do everything that nobody else wanted to do, Um, and it was a large organization, about 7,000 people spread across 14 states, so it was a pretty good-sized organization, and one day, The the real estate guys were going around to all of the business unit leaders and saying, we're going to give you back responsibility for all the space that your organization occupies. So you need to get somebody to own that. And the CIO um, looked over at me and said, you used to run data centers. That's kind of like real estate. Here, take this. Uh, so I said, oh, okay, well, what, what do we have? He goes, I don't know, go ask the real estate guys. And in that moment, that was my accidental professional moment, uh, turns out I inherited about 5 million square feet of administrative space, a million and a half square feet of data centers, and um, a bunch of people spread across 14 states. Now, when I ran data centers, you ran the infrastructure as well as the hardware, the computing hardware. So I knew something about, you know, buildings and infrastructure, but I hadn't really managed administrative space. So I thought, well, I need to learn a little bit more about that as I started getting into it. And that's where I went out and I stumbled across IFMA. (laughs) And uh, so I joined uh, the local Denver chapter of IFMA and, you know, started, you know, learning more about the profession and, and certifications and all that kind of stuff. And one day, Um, they said, would you like to join a committee? And I raised my hand. And um, that sort of led me down the path. Uh, Not long I was the chapter president. Um, I've uh, done four years as on the IFMA Foundation uh, Board of Trustees. I've served on several of the national or international committees. I joined the international, the global board of directors. Um, now I'm the second vice chair of the global board of directors, which puts me on the path to be chairman of the board. Which, in a, in a lot of ways, is uh, was sort of a dream or a goal of mine, one that I never thought I would actually achieve. So uh, to cap off a, a career, uh, to say that you know I'm going to actually chair this organization is is probably a greater honor than anything I've ever done in my professional life. So there we go. That's, that's that's me in a nutshell. So two careers, 40 some odd years, (laughs) and here we are.
0: That's a really, what a journey. And again, a testament to I think how real estate intersects with so many different professions and we've had some really excellent crossovers from the IT world or the technical world, especially on the data center side, because infrastructure and technology are are seamless and they have to go together. And we've had specifically a lot of really good crossovers into FM from the data center and IT operations world. And you're um, a living testament of that success.
1: Well, and and real estate is one of the last uh, industries to go digital. And so we're, we're actually suffering a bit from that. That you know we're we're now seeing this expansion of smart buildings and uh, and IoT, you know, sensors everywhere. And as an industry, many of the people in that profession really don't have a background of what do we do with all this data. Uh, there's not that that discipline of of uh, you know how do we how do we deal with data analytics. Um, so they're getting bombarded with all of this information and technology and there's not a good underpinning of that that technical background so um, I feel fortunate that I had that that technology background and it's helped me out in this in the roles that I've had Um, but many of our uh, professionals you know they've been in a brick and mortar world not a bits and mortar world (laughs) so that that's kind of a a transition that we're, we're moving through. Um, and one of the other problems is, uh, you know, we don't have a good data model for corporate real estate. So a lot of the tools that we're trying to employ don't talk to each other very well. And that's, that's a whole other problem. But uh, anyway, moving on to our topic of sustainability.
0: Yeah, I do want to talk to you we about sustainability. I think your comment about data is really important, though. And I want to underline how essential that is for our future in data driven decisions. And I think the future is going to belong to those that are really good at integration yes, um, versus assuming they can own all of the data. I've been spending a lot of time on data. Uh, when you work with engineers, you can't get a, get away from it anyway. Um, so embracing it. And I think the future is going to become even more dependent on data d- driven decisions and empowered buildings that are automated and, and take action, which, is a good segue into sustainability. But just to set it up for for, uh, 20 seconds is one of the things and just observing you in your your contribution, your tremendous contribution to IFMA and just some of the, you know, I I think I had the fortune of sitting beside you at lunch one day and we were having such great conversations and, and we started talking about sustainability. And I think it must've been hours later that we were still talking about sustainability and I was just so impressed with your knowledge and your passion for this topic. And I, I certainly share the same passion around sustainability. So I thought maybe today we could we could talk a little bit more about that. And I'd love to get your, your thoughts around our progress with sustainability as a profession in, in facilities management and corporate real estate and all things related to the built environment. If you had to give us a report card generically on how we are doing as an industry against our contribution to sustainability. What kind of grade would you give us and, and why, Dean?
1: Um, I would probably say, you know, we're we're a solid C. Uh, you know, the I think sustainability has lagged a bit. Um, you know, for a period of time, you, every corporation has their annual, their corporate you know, social responsibility report, whatever. Um, and I think you'd be hard pressed to, to find the, the details that they put in there, and then actually find how it actually works in practice. Uh, so a lot of greenwashing, as they say, still occurs. Uh, but it's good to put in there because they know that their consumers and their investors want to see that information. Uh, but if you look at where we are from a from an industry wide, um, commercial buildings contribute almost forty percent of the the CO two emissions, and that's everything from the construction to the operations to the decommissioning, everything that goes along with it. So that's a that's a very big number. Um, and and so even if we're making progress at that, there's another side of that is that. Um, you know, prior to COVID, and, and this is probably still true, is that we were building globally the equivalent of a New York City every month. And so that means by 2060, we will literally have doubled the world's building stock. And so how many of those buildings are being built sustainably? Some of them are. But, a, but a good majority of them are, are not, you know, we still don't see a lot of uh, the energy efficiency choices. There's still a lot of value engineering in construction and renovation projects. Um, and, uh, and certainly not nearly enough, you know, going towards the net zero uh, goals of trying to be as, as energy efficient as possible. Um, so I would say, you know, we still got a ways to go there. Um, and part of the that is actually, you know, companies making a conscious decision to say we must be more energy efficient, and to do that um, across the board across their entire organization, you may have to sacrifice some of your profit margin. And we still have, uh, you know, uh, an economy that that rewards um, profit taking over. Sustainability. And so, you know, if we point a finger at Wall Street, I'd have to go say, you know, you guys need to basically start rewarding companies that are operating sustainably and efficiently and not just, um, you know, uh, making obscene profits. Um, So, is that going to happen? Maybe not in my lifetime.
0: So is that that's a very interesting take on it is so do you think is it all about the money is it really come down to just that which often it does but what like other than that what do you think are the biggest obstacles that are preventing our progress like how do we get from a c to an a plus what, what do you think is holding us back because you know what dean we've been talking about sustainability for quite a long time in our in our profession We've had a lot of ramp up period, but I, I, like you, I feel like we're not making progress to the extent that we could and should. What do you think is holding us back?
1: Um, like everything, there's a there's a combination of factors. I used to believe that you know we would become sustainable. Uh, this is what one of the CFOs I used to work for would say: "Is I'll be sustainable when I'm made to be, meaning that when it's mandated, when it becomes regulated." And I thought that was what, what it was going to take, is that we had to just enforce regulation around it. But it turns out that there's probably a, a higher motivation around um, consumers and investors. So again, you know, the, the largest uh, corporations, uh, they either have a large consumer base, if you look at like an Apple. Um, or they have a large investor base, which is probably a lot of banks and other, other types of industries. And when the consumers start asking questions like, show me how you're managing sustainability in your you know, product development, in your, in your manufacturing, in your distribution, and all of those kinds of things. They start paying closer attention to it because now the consumer is voting with their dollars, and for industries that are more investor-driven, it's really when the investor community starts saying, "You got to show me your corporate social responsibility plan," and you have to prove to me that you're actually following that—that that you, you know, lead by example, for uh, for lack of a better term. And so, for the companies that are starting to uh, move that direction, you know, they're seeing it in their investors and their consumers but we need to get more of that. Not everybody is concerned. You know, it's like, I'll still take the lower cost product over the more sustainably produced product And until we can get the more of the consumers going that direction. Then, that, then I think it pushes the industry in that direction.
0: That's a good observation. What do you, do you think that there is somewhat of a generational impact on exactly what you described? Do you think, some people vote, um, you know, is it a generational thing that they would tend to buy more products? Like let's say Gen X, Y, Z versus boomers and and uh, Gen X's. What, what, like what generation do you think would tend to value sustainability more than uh, monetary considerations or price? And do you think that that, um, that curve is going to change as certain generations retire and others start to proliferate.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, if you look at the millennial generation, you know, they're, they're growing up with sustainability. It's always been in their life. Um, it's always been a discussion item. And now with climate change, um, you know, they're concerned and rightfully so, that, that the world, the earth that they're inheriting. Is going to become less livable, um, less hospitable. Um, It's going to be a different more difficult place and so you know they're pushing for it. Um, You know I've heard the stories of you know kids coming home from school and they're learning about this in in grade school and coming home and chastising their parents because they're not recycling because they're not using more energy efficient light bulbs and and things like that. Um, You know being a baby boomer myself you know when i was growing up you know this was not a concern it wasn't really nobody was talking about you know are we um you know consuming more than we should are we polluting the earth more than we should um in high school i had a car that got like four miles to the gallon if i didn't put my foot into it um you know today i drive an electric car (laughs) so you know my my habits have changed but but it was after learning, you know, what, what what do I need to do differently? What do I need to care about? And there's still a lot of people that um, a either don't believe that climate change is a real thing, um, or just for whatever reason don't really feel it is uh, that that they can make a difference. Um, and I've heard from some people that say, well, you know, I really don't care whether we convince all the individuals to recycle because the bigger problems are in some of the largest polluters, whether it's the fossil fuel industry or things like that. Because if we could fix that, you know, that does far more than convincing an entire country to recycle. Um, I, I don't really know the science behind that, whether that data is really supported, um, but it sort of makes a lot of sense. You know, we have a smaller, a smaller target to shoot at As opposed to trying to convince everybody who's on the fence or clearly on the opposite side of the fence, you know, to come over to the, to the sustainability side.
0: Well, that's interesting. And, you know, when you look at 2020, for example, uh, you know, with, with COVID and the pandemic and all of the activities that changed our behaviors. I was following with great interest, the impact that COVID has had on sustainability in, in 2020. And uh, you know, we talk about flattening the curve of COVID. It's an interesting parallel and metaphor to take over to uh, climate change and carbon reduction and flattening the carbon curve. I-, I was wondering if maybe you had any observations around the impact of COVID on sustainability, either from an awareness or a progress perspective.
1: Well, I think the, you're you're right. There has been some studies where they have been able to measure, you know, that there's less output and even visible things like, you know, the the canals in Venice uh, actually being able to see in the water and see fish in there, which haven't been there for years. Um, The, you know, the smog dissipating over LA, Los Angeles, um, you know, those are visible indicators to say that, you know, if we do remove some of our habits or you know, do less driving and things like that, we can reduce it. And they can actually measure it. So now they can say, if we're able to do some of these things, we can make a difference. Um, but I think the, the, the concern is that you know, when the pandemic is over, we will go back to our same old habits. Everybody's out on the road again. We're back into the office. We're driving everywhere. And so we go back to the same output levels that were that we had before, but now we've got some evidence that says we can make a difference. And and up until then, um, it was sort of an academic discussion because there wasn't a, exactly a a measure where you could say, well, if we did this, we would we would actually make a difference. And we can say that now.
0: Yeah, and I think in the future built environment with um, rationalization of space, I think. In 2020, a lot of people realize that, um, you know, their employees could work productively in a remote scenario. So we are seeing a lot of organizations starting to rationalize space. I think some of that might be driven from cost because there's a lot of organizations under cost constraints, given what's happened in 2020. And and real estate is usually in the top three expenditures of any company. So it's the big catalyst. But... Another lateral benefit, I think, of COVID is that, um, you know, with organizations rationalizing their space and and making better use of their space uh, in a more efficient way, using the real estate assets to their maximum potential and realizing that giving employees the flexibility to work anywhere, I think the best carbon you save is the one that you don't expend. And so that, I think, is going to help us uh, with portfolio rationalization, will We'll make some effort and by allowing people more flexibility they won't be commuting as much and I, I do think that some of the things related to going forward in our profession I don't, I don't think we'll ever go back to the way that we were I think that there will be some changes that will will hopefully benefit uh create collateral benefits for sustainability as well yeah
1: yes well, and you know everybody says we're never going to go back to the way we were it's like well we were never going to be going back to the way we were anyway because we're always changing it's just yeah. that now we've accelerated and we've we've kind of shifted some direction as well um you know there there probably will be a, a, a smaller demand for commercial real estate certainly um people space uh, as as we move forward and say okay if we're gonna work from home part of the time even if it's not all the time, uh, do you really need that one hundred thousand square feet, or can you really get by with uh, sixty thousand because of the number of people that you have occupying that space at any given point in time? But you know that's all s- still speculation. It's early speculation. We don't have a uh, you know any sort of history uh, to guide us and say, well, where is this really going to go? So a lot of prediction and and I think, you know, 10 years from now we're going to look back and say, you know, some people will have guessed right and some people will have guessed wrong but the point is, is that right now it's still a guess.
0: I think so and I think it's going to really evolve the role of the facilities manager because these buildings aren't going anywhere they still need to be maintained, but I think that a lot of there's a, a different focus not just on sustainability but the health and safety of those premises so I really see this, the evolution of the role of the facilities manager in those business businesses to be really evolving. I think the other thing that we saw too, Dean, was um, FMs were wearing two hats in contributing to the employee experience and helping to educate and reinforce policies like you must wear a mask or something like that, or just providing people information in the moment. And I, so I, I think it's an exciting time um, you know, sort of a cataclysmic event, if you will, but the impact that it will have on the facilities management profession, I think is, has helped us jump the curve by a couple of years on a number of topics, including sustainability.
1: Yes. Um, well, you know, the, w- when we look at history and you say, where have we seen, you know, major innovations? It's always been war and pestilence. <laughs> And it it really kind of it forces the issue. Um, You know, even though we've been talking about climate change and sustainability, and things like that, uh, you know, until we actually now see the damaging effects, or in the case of COVID, you know, the high death rates and and things like that, that, you know, that really forced us to develop a vaccine in a a record period of time. Um, Would that have occurred if we didn't see the you know the 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 higher death rates probably not. It would have been well. It's kind of like the flu. You know, um, we still have the flu every year, and there's still people that die from it. You know, not as not as many, not as uh, percentage wise as high. Um, but and as we start seeing more effects from climate change, um, you know, we already see some of it. It's not killing people to the extent. But when you look at um, you know, areas of India where the heat is getting so bad that, you know, the elderly are dying off. Um, there's some parts of the world there that they, where they go out before the, the heat, the, the big um, heat events occur and they dig mass graves because they know it's going to kill a number of people. Um, and we're going to see the same thing with, you know, whether it's floods, hurricanes, you know, the extreme weather events, um, things like that, um, you know, with the all the fires, we know that we've lost people uh, with the uh, extensive fires that have been going on. Um, and when you start seeing more and more people impacted and more and more cost, you know, destroying entire communities and industries, um, all of a sudden now it takes on a higher importance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things we try to do with the audience is always give them some sort of a takeaway, some way that they can take this this topic and and go ahead in their own lives and in their own work environment and make a difference. So, if if you could give somebody advice on to like two or three things that they could do to make progress against sustainability, whether it be in the workplace or their personal life, what are what are some of the most impactful things? that you feel that we could do to continue to uh, reduce our carbon?
1: Well, I think it depends on, you know, what uh, your your means, you know, what do you have available? Um, One of the concerns I've seen uh, coming up is um, strategic electrification. So people don't realize, you know, when we're trying to say we need to reduce the energy consumption in big buildings, well, a lot of them still have, you know, gas powered or steam-powered or other other types of equipment. So we need to move to more electrified uh, types of equipment. Well the same thing applies to residences. Uh, but when you look at the larger population, you know, uh, people who rent or uh, lower income populations, they don't necessarily have the disposable income to replace their furnace and their gas stove and and gas hot water heater, you know, with electrified appliances. So, you know, there's gonna have to be some some shift in there. How do we help people uh, make that transition? Um, But starting with, you know, the very simple things, you know, people can say, we know that we're consuming light bulbs, at least see if you can invest in in LED, you know, versus the older incandescent and even uh, compact fluorescent technologies. Um, I've seen it myself. I actually measured it in a prior house that I had because I changed out all of our light bulbs for LEDs. And I saw actually a pretty significant drop in my um, energy bill. Um, We moved into this house about six years ago. Um, It's heavily insulated. It's got about six inch exterior walls, uh, fully insulated. I've got five and a half kilowatts of solar on my roof. All of the um, light fixtures are are LED or there's a couple of compact fluorescents around. Um, I have a um, tankless hot water heater um, electric. I don't have an electric furnace yet that's still not quite that technology is not quite there yet. Um, and as I said, I drive an electric car and um, and I started I changed my uh, utility plan with the utility company. so I use time of use billing because I charge my car overnight, that's when the rates are cheap. I have solar panels on my roof, which is actually feeding my house during the day when the rates are high. So um, my electric bill is relatively small. Uh, but this time of the year, I still have a larger natural gas bill. Um, we recycle to the best of our ability, you know, trying to uh, be as, as conscientious as we can there. Those are all things that, that people um, it's a change in habit. And if, you've, if you're older and have been doing things a certain way for 20 or 30 years, sometimes it's hard to change habits. But it's, it's something that if you put your mind to it, you, know, you can change some of those habits and be more um, energy efficient and sort of help the planet. You know, I even pay for a little extra on my utility bill uh, to say that I get my utility from wind source So, in essence, what I'm not producing with solar, uh, my utility company says, you know, I'm getting the rest of my utility, what I do use from the grid as a a wind source. So, I'm as as sustainable as I can get right now.
0: (laughs) I think you've shared a wide spectrum of things that are realistic that people could adopt. And the one thing I would encourage people to do is, you talked about habits, Dean, and, you know, when you think about, how much progress we have to make, it can be overwhelming, but to build new habits, you have to try. And I would just encourage everybody that's listening to pick something. I mean, we've heard, we've been exposed to different things you can do. You've heard a few examples from Dean today, but try something, pick one thing and try it and learn from it. Talk about it with your neighbors and your friends, what your experience is, and then try another thing and try another thing. But it all begins with just experimenting and and trying something and it doesn't have to be as, you know, as radical, it it can be just something that you're comfortable with starting but once you start, it's interesting the path that it will lead you down of, uh, you know, pride and comfort and, you know, you're building your, your ability to deal with change in a, in a much more productive way. So that would be my advice is just try something. Do, pick one thing, change your thermostat so you, with one of those cool apps so you can monitor it remotely and, and manage your temperature of, of your home. Just something very, very simple, but just take baby steps and experiment and learn and, and love to do that would be my advice.
1: Yeah, I didn't even go into the part that most of my house is automated as well. So, uh, you know, if I forget to do something, the automation takes care of it for me. Well,
0: that doesn't surprise (laughs) me coming from your background and especially now that I know what your roots are in the data center world. So um, yeah, of course you would want to do that with your own home as much to the extent that we can, right?
1: No, another, um, I'll just put in a plug. So one of the other things I did a couple of years ago, There is an organization called the Climate Reality Project, um, actually founded by uh, former Vice President Al Gore, Um, who did the movie Inconvenient and Inconvenient Truth, uh, for those that are familiar with that. But he founded this organization. And what they do is they teach people to give climate change presentations. So again, it's getting the message out there. And so far, uh, they do this. It's free to attend. You, uh, they're now doing it virtually, but I attended a, um, a session in another city. Uh, and when you're done, they give you all of this really rich material on, you know, why is climate change a problem? And it's well vetted. It's all, got all the background information that I can go out and scare the hell out of people on climate change. And that's what I've been doing. In fact, somewhere here, I've got a little pin that they give you too that you can wear. Which, along with my C.F.M., uh, you know, I'm I'm very proud of, of that one as well. But you know, I do go out and give climate change presentations to people to explain why is this a problem, and and how do we know that it's human caused? Because uh, that's still a big question. Everybody goes, well, why is why is this not a natural thing? Aren't we always going through these cycles? And that is true. Um, And they can actually trace back at least 800,000 years through ice cores and other things, because when you drill into the ice, you actually pull out air that's frozen in that ice, and they can measure what the contents of that air was, uh, how much CO2 was there and so forth. And we've definitely seen the cycles of of higher CO2 and and lower and and going through all of this 800,000 years, but nothing from what we've seen in the last 100 years. You know, the, the most I think we we hit was somewhere around the 330, 350 maybe parts per million at the highest range. We're now at 412 or 425. I can't remember the last reading, but it's the the highest that they've been able to record through that that historical record that they can they can show, um, and and they can actually measure in the atmosphere. Um, CO2 actually is made up of different types of, of carbon. Uh, carbon 12, carbon 13, and carbon 14. Uh, carbon 12 is typically the, um, the lighter, which is uh, fossil, not fossil, uh, is, is um, natural materials. It's the natural carbon through um, plant life and decay that occurs. Fossil fuel is the heavier uh, carbon 13. And they can actually see through, through these measurements, the increase is all, almost all in, in the carbon-13. Um, so we know that the, the higher levels of CO2 in the atmosphere are uh, definitely attributed to fossil fuel, which is human a- activity. Um, we also have the problems with methane. You know Everybody's concerned about whether it's cows I think Bill Gates was interviewed, and he said, "You know, I never thought I'd actually be talking about cow farts on a <laughs> on a uh, on a discussion." Um, but the the larger issue there is that um, you know what we call natural gas that was a name they gave it in order to be uh, more palatable, but it's methane, and uh, methane is a smaller part of the greenhouse gases but it punches way above its weight that it actually has like, you know, orders of magnitude higher heat retention properties than carbon dioxide, than CO2. And so all of the methane and the in the pipelines and so forth, you know, they, they have tremendous leakage. Um, we're also seeing, you know, more methane being released from the tundras as the, you know, the uh, the frozen, Arctic uh, Greenland and some of the parts of uh, Siberia and other things as they start to thaw out, they're releasing tremendous amounts of methane of the atmosphere. Uh, same thing with the, the oceans, the ocean, deep oceans, um, methane is being released out of the oceans and comes up and is released into the atmosphere. So all of those things are additive. Um, you know, there, there's other greenhouse gases. Um, Uh, nitrous oxide which you know is my favorite dental um (laughs) device
0: laughing gas right that's laughing Laughing gas laughing
1: gas carbon uh, uh, nitrous oxide but my dentist doesn't use it anymore um and uh bad news for me because that's the only cheap thrill I get anymore but uh you know (laughs) but but they don't they stopped using it partly because of the concern there's other things they can do and it doesn't uh, pollute the atmosphere so this is just my dentist who happens to feel that that's part of their contribution to not using that particular greenhouse gas uh, any further because there's other things that they can do so um but it's it's good to check out climate reality project even if you don't uh, go get training to become a, a climate leader as they call them um, there's a lot of information that they that they make available. Um, that gives you much more information about why these things are a problem, and why some of it is accelerating. As we see, you know, more of the forest areas being harvested or burned. Um, there's an area of the Amazon uh, that that's being basically stripped, um, you know, in Brazil and other places as we speak. Um, it, it's like a soccer field's worth a day or more. Um, that, that's being uh, removed. Well, that particular area produces about one fifth of the planet's oxygen. So when you take that away, we're we're removing our ability to breathe. And
0: uh, is it why are they deforesting? Is it for paper or or farming? Do you know?
1: It's it's a little of both. Yeah, it's it's farming. It's uh, it's using the the wood for Fuel and, and other sources, but it's um, it's something that as a country they're not preventing. They're not um, they, they made no agreements to um, reduce that deforestation. And of course, it takes hundreds of years to grow back. So um, you know we're we're really removing a lot of our ability to survive. <laughs>
0: Barb and I worked on a project about five years ago called the paperless experiment, where we were trying to create a movement inside the workplace to get people to try to not print or use any paper at least one day a week with the attempt to reduce. And it was it was based off something you said. And it's not just deforestation and the carbon impact of the generation of paper and the recycling of paper, but... Um, A lot of people don't recycle, unfortunately, and a lot of paper still ends up in landfill. And paper actually creates methane when it decomposes, which is 22 times higher than just regular carbon. And um, we had had hoped that that would catch on a little bit more, but maybe it's time to reinvigorate that again and just help people be aware. It's just, again, one thing that you can do in your own habits and behaviors to be able to... uh, you know, discourage the impact that, that we all contribute to. But so that's climate reality project, Dean, you mentioned, is it climaterealityproject.com or maybe you could send us the link and I'm happy to include it as um, a clickable link at the end of the podcast, just so anybody can find out more. It sounds very interesting. And I mean, who doesn't want to further their education in this area? I think we could learn a lot for ourselves, but also be great ambassadors, at our workplaces as well with that knowledge, armed with that.
1: Yeah, I actually took uh, one of those free university (laughs) classes on climate science. And if I wasn't um, freaked out before, I was certainly after I took that.
0: (laughs) Well, we we will be sure to add that in and uh, what a great way to help people learn more, give them the facts and tools that they need to be able to carry that forward themselves. I'm so delighted to hear it's free but um, turn them into champions of, of this important cause going forward. Dean, I, I want to say on a, on a personal note, it's just, it's such a pleasure to know you. And I really thank you so much for your incredible contribution to our profession. And just listening to you, I, I know you can speak so conversantly in a wide spectrum of topics and sustainability is only one. And I know we're scratching the surface, but I, I want to conclude with a, a thank you on behalf of our industry for the thumbprint that you have personally left on it, what you advocate and how we all learn from you. And I, I thank you so much for your contribution, which is just so far and above um, what what so many of others have done. So you're really a standout in our industry, Dean. Thank you.
1: Well, oh, thank you for that and, and for all of that you do. We. Um... I'm sitting here in Denver, Colorado. You're in Canada, and of course, with our EPMI Global Board, we have people all over the world. And this really does—it's um, a global activity. It's not just a U.S. problem or or a China problem or, or whatever. It's uh, it's a global activity, and we all need to come together. Um, the one thing that that we've been able to do, even more so with COVID, uh, is that we're we are reaching out. Uh, with our you know, technolo- technology to communicate um, uh, in, in more ways. Uh, I've been on, like I said, several different calls. I, I started uh, with an NIPMA call at 6 a.m. my time this morning. And it was 6 a.m. because we had people on from uh, Europe and from Hong Kong and all across the United States. And so we made it so that we inconvenienced most everybody. I think it was 10 10 p.m. Hong Kong time. The only one that was doing well was our chairman of the board and he was in Copenhagen. So it was middle of the afternoon for him. Um, But everybody else, uh, we had people in California up at 5 a.m. to be on that call. But you know, it's
0: funny you say that because it was so easy before we used to jump on planes to go to a one hour meeting. Whereas I think through the immersion that we have had using tools like Teams and Zoom and GoToMeeting, it's um, um, a lot more effective. I, I think we would all twice before we jump on a plane to attend a an, an meeting when we could very simply do something like this in a constructive way, even though it might mean some people have late mornings or nights, but uh, it, still, it still feels efficient as well. And I think people are a lot more comfortable with it as a viable way going forward.
1: Uh, and I and I do recall, you know, getting on an airplane, flying you know from Denver to San Francisco for an afternoon meeting, getting on a plane and flying back on the same day. Yeah. Um, and, and you think about how inefficient that is. Of course, that was before we had these technologies available. But even then, you know to to fly out for a, a short meeting and fly back was an awful lot of uh, expended energy. For a very short period of time.
0: <laughs> yeah well I do look forward to seeing you in person at probably our our next conference or board meeting um, because I do miss that in person but it just might mean that we're a little bit more efficient in in how we communicate in between those major events instead of for a one-hour meeting as as you say but um well, you, if, go ahead.
1: I was going to say I think we all miss that that people connection I've been working yeah. from home since since March and even though we talk to people every day, um, it, it's still just not the same as being able to have those, um, those drive-by meetings in the hallway and, and, and things like that. So we're missing out on um, innovation opportunities is, is really, I think, the biggest um, detriment to not being able to meet in person is that those opportunities are not happening.
0: Yeah, there, we tend to be fairly utilitarian in our calls versus a bit more organic, which we do with more spontaneous interactions. And, and I, I like you, Dean, I look forward to that. We're, it's not gonna be one or the other, we will do that. But uh, I think our contacts in between, we can, we're more comfortable doing it in other ways and we're still efficient. So, hey Dean, if anybody wants to reach you just because uh, they're, they're dazzled by your wisdom today, what, what is the best way to, for them to reach out to you to get in, in contact with you?
1: Uh, Well, I have, um, you know, I've got my IFMA email address, uh, which I do spend a lot of time on these days. So it's dean.stanberry at ifma.org. So you can certainly include that. Uh, So that's really probably the best way to reach out to me. And also um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Encourage people reach out and and connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I do pay attention to that as well. So um, part of my morning is usually going in and seeing how many new messages I've got and trying to reply to those before before the day really kicks in.
0: <laughs> well, Dean Stanberry, thank you so much for being a guest today. I always come away learning something and I do look forward to seeing you in person uh, someday, my friend. But meanwhile, stay ha- happy and healthy and well. And to you and your family, I hope you have a great break and I'll look forward to seeing you in the new year.
1: Likewise, Laurie. You take care. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Leading Innovation at Work, the future of business podcast. Hey, if you have questions or comments about this episode, reach out to us via our website at www.leadinginnovationatwork.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please hit like and subscribe on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you tune in. You can find me, Lori Rowlandson, on LinkedIn or via my website at laurierowlandson.com. That's L-O-R-R-I-R-O-W-L-A-N-D-S-O-N dot com. Thank you for listening.